What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. In August of 2017, Dara Khosrowshahi became the CEO of Uber, succeeding founder Travis Kalanick. Khosrow Shahi manages the company's fast-growing business in 63 countries around the world and leads a global team of more than 22,000 employees. He was previously the CEO of Expedia, which he grew into one of the world's largest online travel companies. Khosrow Shahi spoke with David Rubenstein, co-founder of the Carlyle Group and host of the Bloomberg television show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations. They discussed the company, the future of transportation, and self-driving vehicles. You've been the CEO of Uber for how long now? Uh, two years. Two years? Yes. And you enjoy it? I love it. Okay, so when you came in, the company was not a public company. You've taken it not public. Yet. Yes, yes. And you've received a lot of publicity about the IPO. Obviously, you know that. Uh, the company now has a higher market capitalization, roughly $72 billion, something like that. Mm-hmm. Higher market capitalization than any company in American capitalism history, except for Facebook, this short a time after um, its IPO. Why are, you, are so many people criticizing you for having a $72 billion market cap? <laughs> well, I think that there are um, many critics out there, especially for, the, for large companies. That, that, that's a fact of life. I do think that what's different about uh, some of the technology companies of our generation that are coming public the, the so-called unicorns, is that we've actually stayed private for longer. Uh, and we have raised more money over a longer period of time. And as a result, when we come public, uh, we generally have bigger scale than companies who went public, let's say the last generation of companies that, that went public as well. But my view on this is we wanted to go public. We needed to make sure that we are well capitalized for the next five years for the company, and we achieved that. And now the time is to put your head down and get the real work done. Hey, but after the company did go public, while I kind of pointed out that you, is a very high market capitalization uh, so soon after uh, its IPO, it did go down by about 11%, which is a record decline after an IPO. So did you think the investment bankers didn't price it correctly? Or what do you think the problem was on the IPO? You know, I love how this interview is starting. I really <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I think that uh, actually the, the timing of our IPO was very much aligned with uh, the, our president's tariff wars the same day. So I think we got caught up in a bit of a market swirl. And there's nothing you can do about that. And what I tell the team is, is in short term, the, the market can be a voting machine, but long term, it's a weighing machine. And we are focused on the weighing. And I'm, very confident that if we as a team execute, the market will okay. appreciate it. By the way, how did you get here? You didn't take an Uber, did you? Uh, unfortunately, when I come here, I need some professional okay. security. But do you it's take a, Uber from a, time to time? Yeah, this weekend with the family, we're taking Ubers all over the place, absolutely. So when you take an Uber, um, let's, let's, let's talk about the ride sharing part. You take an yes. Uber, um, do they know who you are? It's about 50-50. And the ones that don't know you, you just 
give them comments on how good they are or not? How do you? I make sure that I'm very polite. I make okay. sure that I don't slam the door, ask them how they're doing. If I get on the phone call, I ask them, you know, is it okay to make a phone call, et cetera. So I try to be as nice as I can because I'm trying to improve my Uber rating. Okay. It's actually not as good as what now, I wanted. I, I've noticed you have said before that people shouldn't slam the doors. Is that a big problem? Uh, it, if you're driving a car and you've got tens, 20 passengers coming in, the car is really an asset of yours. Your company has roughly 22,000 employees? Yes. All right, but you have three million more so drivers. Almost right? four million drivers and couriers now on a global basis, right. so, yes. So how, you're in 63 countries? Or, yes. And 585 cities or something like that? You have been briefed very effectively. Okay. It's impressive. All right, today in the United States, uh, is, it, is it increasing in terms of usage or is it going steady or is it going down? No, it's increasing in every single market. So the growth rates are, we as a company, the last quarter that we announced as right. a newly uh, public company, we announced that on a foreign exchange neutral basis, we grew our bookings 41% year on year. And this is uh, off of a pretty considerable base of bookings, uh, almost 15 billion kind of run rate on a quarterly basis. So the business is growing at very big scale at pretty impressive rates. But last quarter, when you had your earnings announcement, you did lose a billion dollars during the previous quarter. Yes. I'm sure you know this. But Those are details that are important, right. but you know. So, um, so um, how much longer can you lose a billion dollars a quarter and keep going? We have a very significant amount of cash in the bank. You've got $8 billion uh, in the IPO and you already had some money. Yeah, we, we already had some money. So the company at this point is incredibly well capitalized uh, to keep investing. And, and the markets that we're going after, the transportation of people, food, freight, these, are, these markets represent $16 trillion markets that we're going after. All right, And if you look at even Uber, the ride-share business itself, when you look at our audience of the countries in which we operate, typically we are addressing no more than 2% okay. of the population of these countries. So we think it's time to lean forward. The business itself can be quite profitable. We're confident of that. But the next two, three, four years are going to be about growth and then we'll flip it over as the market demands. So if I wanted to have a ride share, let's say right after this interview and go mm -hmm. somewhere, why should I pick Uber versus your competitors, let's say Lyft or Via? I think we have lots of competitors who are very good at what they do. Uh, I think we typically, in most markets, and pretty much every market that we operate, we have the greatest number of drivers out on the market. So we've got the best liquidity, so you're probably gonna get the best ETA, so you'll get the quickest driver to, to pick you up. The choices that we have are pretty impressive. So for example, in, in DC now, uh, we have transit schedules right on the app. So we really want to move from a ride hailing app to essentially your transportation partner, right. so that if you're trying to get from A to B, we're gonna give you all the information that you have, which many of our competitors don't do, to be able to get from A to B with a trade-off of time, convenience, and price as well. So right now, um, you have many different businesses. Ride sharing is the one that you're most famous for, but actually it's more profitable, I think, for you, is Uber Eats. Is that right? Uber Eats is more profitable? No, ride sharing is, is more profitable in most markets. It's, it's the more mature part of the business. The Uber Eats business is now about 20% of our business. It's growing uh, over 100% on a year-on-year basis. The run rate is, is enormous. We're, we're now the largest... Uh, food delivery player ex-China, 
Now we entered this business three years ago. As a, um, as a revenue percentage right now, it's what percentage of your? It's about 20% of 20%. our bookings. How many cities is that in? Uh, Eats is now in over 500 cities. What's the most popular food that on your Uber Eats? Fried chicken is magic. Fried chicken. <laughs> and how do you keep the grease from kind of um, going through? I mean, they just... David, I'm covering that in my ne next monthly business review. I haven't gone to fried okay. chicken grease right, yet. Fried but chicken. We're okay, on. that's the most popular. Yeah. Let's talk about some of your other businesses. Over here you have, uh, I guess, your scooter business yes. and your electric bike business. So the scooter business um, is all over the United States and around the world? or uh, It's in about 25 cities now and expanding, mostly in the U.S., but we're expanding into right. Europe pretty quickly as well. Now you have and your scooter that's manufactured just for you, is it, or is it different than the scooters that other companies use? Uh, we are building a scooter that's manufactured just for us. The bike is manufactured just by us and it's designed by us, okay. totally proprietary. Now, some people say scooters are dangerous. What do you say about that? Uh, I think that that is, it's something that we're watching pretty carefully. Uh, and we are working on technologies to modulate those issues. So for example, when scooters get to very busy parts of town, we will slow them down. Uh, some of these scooters early on, they went as, as high as 20 miles an hour. Now we're working with cities to say, hey, how fast do you think is a responsible speed? Uh, we encourage our riders to wear helmets. Now you have a new product, which is helicopters. Yes, yes, Ubercopter. Okay, now you've launched that in a couple cities so in far? In New York City so far we have, yes. And it's okay. a service from downtown New York to JFK, which and is pretty interesting. And is there great demand for that? Uh, well, we'll see. Um, as, as you may know, going to JFK during rush hour in New York City is, is a mess. Uh, and, and really what, what we are trying to What does understand. that cost to do? If you want to go from downtown Manhattan to JFK, what does that cost? In an Ubercopter? Yes. Uh, about 200 bucks which is actually fairly, if, if you take, if you're going from downtown New York to JFK with an Uber Black, it's gonna cost close to $200 anyway. So the magic about being able to do it in a helicopter is that we're bringing in demand from thousands of, of users who are going to JFK and we're matching three or four users and we're putting them in the same vehicle. So one of the keys in terms of traffic is most people drive alone and that's a, that's a huge waste of our roads it's a huge waste of gas, et cetera. Right. And we have a product called Pool where we'll match two or three or four different riders into one car. And essentially our Ubercopter is, is Pool for the air. And what you'll see is that these helicopters are going to be replaced by a generation of electrically powered vertical takeoff and landing. Now, will they ever be driverless? They will eventually be driverless, uh, but we are absolutely going to start with pilots. I think it's a right. safer way to go. But I think you, you can expect that in the aviation industry right. in general, um, they are absolutely taking a look at either computers assisting pilots more and more, right. there's some controversies with that, or over a long, long period of time, uh, going driverless so to speak, now, or pilotless. Let's talk about your driverless or autonomous business. Yeah. Uh, you took a lot of people from Carnegie Mellon. Yes, we did. Out of the robotics department. And you have said recently that you think it's not going to happen so quickly as people have previously said. Uh, how long will it be before your um, ride, ride program or your driver program is one where there's no drivers? 
No drivers. I think it'll or be it'll be 15 plus years. I, I think it'll take a long time. So I, I think there's this drama around robots replacing humans, and I think the reality of life is that the better thing that humans alone and robots alone are robots and humans working together. Okay, and 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 so robots are very well designed for replacing repetitive, um, predictable behaviors. Most of driving is not either repetitive or predictable, but there's a subset of routes that are. So what you'll see with our driverless program is that one, we're gonna be incredibly careful and we're gonna make sure that safety absolutely comes first. But we are building our driverless program, and by the way, we're working with third parties as well, within a context of a network where, for example, in DC, we, our data scientists, know what are the 1% easiest trips in DC. Uh, and an easy trip in DC may, may be avoid a roundabout, avoid an unprotected left turn, stay away, let's say, from the airports, stay on areas that are very, very well mapped. There are a set of routes that are incredibly easy to drive. And what you'll see with us, as far as our driverless program is, we will get the machines to do the simple stuff, and then we will have the humans do the difficult stuff, and the two are gonna coexist for 10, 15 years for a long period of time versus kind of the, okay. let's say, the drama that the, that the press reports. Your 15-year answer was, was intended to mean no drivers at all, but you expect to have some driverless or autonomous vehicles uh, in a year or two or three or four? I think within the next five years, five you're going to see some driverless vehicles out in the markets. And again, right. I think it's going to be in a very, very limited way. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, you spun off your autonomous or driverless part of your company to a separate company. Why did you do that? We created a separate company that, uh, where we uh, were able to bring in some investors uh, and some partners. Uh, uh, Toyota, who is, as you know, a huge OEM, and we have a terrific partnership with Toyota. Denso, which is a Toyota company as well, that is very strong in manufacturing kits and sensors and other parts of the car. Um, and really bringing in Toyota and Denso was about building these autonomous vehicles at scale. And then we also brought in um, Masa and SoftBank as a financial now, partner as well. SoftBank is your biggest single investor still? Yes. And they went in at a valuation that is above or right where you currently are? Below, uh, SoftBank got a decent deal. And okay. I think it'll get more decent with time. So when was the company actually first started? And who actually started the company? Uh, the company was started about nine years ago, and it was started by Garrett Camp, who uh, is an entrepreneur. He's still on a board. He's he's unbelievably smart guy. Uh, so he brought on Travis Kalanick, who is our former CEO and one of the founders as well. And so Garrett and Travis and then another one of our founders, Ryan, really teamed up to build this thing. Now, many of the people who were there at the beginning and um, have 
own, own a lot of stock. In fact, a lot of people in the company own more stock than you do. You're the CEO. Yes. You yes. think you're underpaid because you know you're you've taken it public and you don't own as much stock as some people working for you. Is that a problem for you? Uh, it is. I, I would never claim that I'm underpaid. Okay. <laughs> you grew up not in the United States. Where were you born? I was born in uh, Iran, actually. Okay. And uh, why did you leave Iran? I left Iran in 1978. Uh, I was nine years old, and this was with, uh, when the Iranian Revolution happened. Uh, my family was an industrial family well off, and when the Shah was overthrown, uh, folks like my family were no longer welcome in Iran. So we left Iran, we went to France, uh, actually to wait until things calmed down, and things never calmed down. Uh, and then we went from France to uh, Irvington, New York, where we stayed in my uncle's house because we had no, no other place okay. to stay. So you went to high school in? Or... Uh, in, uh, in Tarrytown, New York, Hackley okay. School. And then you went to Brown? Yes, I studied uh, bioelectrical engineering at Brown and then uh, threw it all the way to be an investment banker in New York City, so go figure. So you were at Allen and Company for yes. many years? Yes. And uh, you didn't want to go into private equity, the higher calling of investment banking was good enough? You know, I, it was a question of just how evil I wanted to be. I and see. I wanted to be just a little less evil. Okay, all right, okay. Well, you could have gone to hedge funds if you wanted. But <laughs> That's okay. the ultimate. Okay. With, so, with that, I would have had horns. You okay. Know? So uh, you're minding your own business at Allen Company, and then all of a sudden you got to work for Barry Diller? For Barry Diller, yes. Uh, how did he know of you? Uh, I was a grunt analyst. Uh, on a deal for Barry Diller. Barry Diller was, uh, this was, um, he was bidding against Sumner Redstone. It was a big battle in, in Wall Street. He was bidding against uh, Sumner Redstone for Paramount. It was a back and forth, it was an unfriendly bid. He was, a, he was not wanted. Uh, but we put up a big fight. And I got to know Barry over that period of time and I thought to myself, you know, if I ever have the chance to work for that person, I want to work for that person, and, and I got the chance eventually. All right, so you went to work for him. Yes. And then ultimately, um, one of the companies he owned was uh, Expedia. Yes. And did he own it before you joined? Or you? I was, so I went to work for him as the deal person. Uh, and so we did a bunch of deals and brought in companies in the travel space. We bought both Hotels.com and Expedia. Uh, and they were part of the family, and they were part of the family to some extent because of the deals that we did when I came in. All right, so you became the CEO of XPD. I did, yes. And did you have any experience in being a CEO? Why did he think you'd be good at being a CEO? Um, he was desperate. Okay. So uh, we, we were in a situation where um, one of the founders of Expedia, who was running Expedia at the time, decided, and, and this kind of stuff happens very naturally, which is, Founding a company, building a company is different from managing it and, and moving it into a mature state. Uh, and uh, this person decided that, hey, I'm not up for the CEO gig anymore. Barry, can you find a replacement? Um, and, you, you were not the first I choice, him, sir. Uh, you know, I have no idea. I never asked him, but I raised my hand and he said yes. Okay. All right. And one point, the Expedia board gave you, I guess, some stock options that were worth $180 million. Uh, I guess they did, based on theoretical values, yes. Okay. And then all of a sudden, while you're doing a very good job running it and maybe going to get $180 million on theoretical value at some point, um, somebody asked you to interview for the job of being the CEO of Uber. Is that yes. right? Yes. And did you say, I already have a job? Or Yeah. At first, when I got called, I, I said, no way. Uh, but then I, I talked to a couple of friends. And, and you know, you don't get too many chances as a professional or otherwise to 
to work at and especially lead uh, a company that I think is a part of how we live life. And, and I decided in, that, in this case, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Okay. I took so it. Did you tell Barry Diller you were interviewing for this? I did. I did very early. As you know, the, the press was all over the place. You don't think you could have kept it a secret, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't. It's Barry, um, I, I have Barry to thank for pretty much everything in my professional career. Uh, and I could not bear the possibility of his hearing about this from some news report. Uh, so he was the first person that I called. Um, he was pretty unhappy at the beginning. Uh, but then he called me back. We had a series of conversations. He called me back and he said, listen, I understand why you're doing this. Let me know how I can be helpful. And he was genuinely helpful as we went along this journey. And, and uh, you know, we are where we are now. And he didn't remind you of the $180 million in stock options <laughs> He didn't remind you of that? Or? Um, he understood that the reason why I would do this was not necessarily monetary. So when you came in, you were replacing Travis Kalanick, who yes. was one of the founders and a big yes. shareholder, one of the biggest Huge. shareholders. Yeah. But he still was on your board. Yes. So was that awkward to be the CEO replacing somebody who's still on the board and a big shareholder? Was that easy to do or not? Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm the, I feel the same way. I'm on the board of Expedia, and I'm the former CEO. And there's a new CEO who actually I picked, Mark Okerstrom, who's, who's, a, who's the board CEO. And I'll tell you, being a former CEO, it's a little weird sitting there and having someone else do something differently with your baby, because I think... Uber feels like Travis's baby, and Expedia felt like mine, and it's a little weird, but you know what? You, you're respectful, you get out of the way, you give the CEO support, and I think Travis has done the same for me. So it's, is it weird? Yes, uh, but are we in a situation where we're respectful and comfortable, and is he there for me when I need his advice? Yes. And what's the biggest challenge you currently see uh, the company facing? I think the biggest challenge that, that we have is a, is a common challenge that you see with some of the large technology companies out there, which is there is an increasing regulatory burden uh, that is coming on some of the tech company, some of it deserved. Let's suppose I had some extra money and I wanted to buy into a company like yours. Mm -hmm. Why should I buy your I think you have some extra money, don't you? Never have enough. but. Uh... <laughs> Well, why should I buy your stock? Uh, is it likely to go up from where it is? And why is it likely to outperform some of your competitors? Uh, I have no idea where it's going next week or next month. But over a long period of time, we are at the cusp of a transportation revolution. Uh, we, are, we, we are the player that's global. We're the player that is multi-product in terms of moving people, food, things with our freight business as well. We have a much larger scope than any other, of the other players out there. And I tell you that ourselves and many of our competitors are going to do great because this is about replacing car ownership. This is about redefining how cities are shaped. This is about shaping how people move in, in urban centers. To summarize, what would you like the average person who's listening to know about Uber and its future? I think what, what I want you to know is that we essentially want to be your partner in terms of your everyday life in a city. When you want to go to work, we want to be there. When you're coming back to work, we want to be there. Uh, we want to be there to feed you. Uh, and we want to be your everyday utility uh, in your use. And we will do so in a responsible way. Uh, this is a company that uh, wants to be great, but wants to do good for the world as well. 
uh, and we know we had a lot of work ahead of us. That was Uber CEO Dara Khosrow Shahi speaking to Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.